Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Benjamin Lam McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and today on the show I'm joined by Game of Thrones and Ripper Street star, Jerome Flynn. Now, Jerome is talking to me today about his charity campaign as well, Roaring for Freedom, and after he finishes talking about that, he does talk a lot about Game of Thrones and Ripper Street, and he does uh, talk about his future involvement in Game of Thrones Series 5, some filming locations which haven't yet been announced, as well as some fantastic juicy details on the new Ripper Street series commissioned by Amazon in uh, cooperation with the BBC. And after that interview, I'll be back to give you the latest DVD reviews from Roadshow and the latest cinematic releases thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas. But first, here's my interview with TV star Jerome Flynn. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ben. Now, when did you know that you wanted to pursue acting as a career? Um, well, I was brought up in an acting family, very much so. Bit of a dynasty, um, you could say. Um, both parents were... Uh, Dad was on the London stage and um, West End musicals when I was a kid. Mum, thankfully, um, gave up to, to look after her kids, so we got the benefit of um, a, a very present mother. But Dad was, uh, yeah, very much um, in the profession, as were my grandparents. So it was in the blood and the, the family culture, but it wasn't until I was, I think, 15 I, or 14, I was at school, in a play called Charlie's Aunt, um, with a dress on, um, discovering I could make people laugh and, and discovering that magic relationship, magical relationship that can happen between audience and, uh, and the people on stage. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like it. It's the same as similar to when a band is playing or also the sort of similar thing you can get. Um, when playing sport, there's a, although it's a different type of creativity, but it's still, it's like going into a zone where you're totally in the unknown and you're that kind of creative energy is really free and flying. And, uh, that, that did it for me, I think. Absolutely. Now coming from an acting family, did you feel any additional pressure when taking on the career? No, uh, on the contrary, I think because it was what I was brought up with, then um, it just seemed, you know, a lot of the parts, the bits of the business, which might take other people kind of time to get used to or that might seem stressful or threatening. It, it was so much part of my life, I suppose, because it was part of dads and mums that, um, uh, I think I've forgotten the question you asked, but... Uh, <laughs> It seemed quite na more quite natural to me. Okay, so what's been your most memorable experience in your career so far? Oh gosh, my most memorable experience. Yeah, I'm not a great one for memories. Not, I'm not saying I'm losing mine, but uh, it's not like I go around kind of that conscious of the best moments or the worst moments. I feel very lucky and blessed to have just been given the work I do and the opportunities and, and I've had an extraordinarily varied um, 
kind of time of it in the business. But as we're speaking, I think the highlight for me was playing my hero and I comic hero and idol Tommy Cooper um, on stage and getting to be him, you know, and do his act and those favorite, the favorite tricks and, and jokes, wonderful jokes that he used to tell and, and just to inhabit him and tour the country. I spent, I was in the West End for four or five months and then I toured the country and to feel that again, it was in that kind of relationship with the audience that he had and the love that the British public had for him and to recreate that and be part of that, it was that was extraordinary, extraordinary. It certainly would have been. So was there one project or experience you saw as a turning point for your career? Well, for my career, a turning point? Everything leads to, you know, that's the thing with work and experience begets it in, in, in the... So it was all turning points, but... I suppose being in a, you know, once you get in a successful show that has a lot of, you know, from a purely practical point of view, uh, if you like, in terms of turning point, then Soldier Soldier, because of the amount of people that watched it, and that was a time where, you know, there wasn't the, the, the digital TV and hundreds of channels, so we had, you know, I think we had 65, 70% of the viewing kind of, public then 17 million viewers at you know at one point which for a drama was very high so that put me into a different you know that's also what led to the singing um the two (laughs) kind of uh two-year pop career because of the that was all because simon cowell could see that we had you know we had that much of an audience that all needed to do was put two blue-eyed boys together and a and some wonderful love songs, and you, you had a kind of marketing dream. Um, to be totally cold about it, you know, so in a, in a way, that was a turning point, but that was a turning point in my life for many reasons, partly because it put me in the limelight even more, and on one level that then uh, afforded me, I suppose, more interest and more job offers. But... Um, it also took me to a place where it actually became quite overwhelming and um, it, I found it harder and harder to um, have my own space and my own life and my own time to grow and explore. I was very much, I am very much a seeker, uh, if you like. And uh, the I think just the demand that was put on me also meant that it was a turning point because I, I actually just decided to take time out and walk away uh, at, at the time where I was being offered most. So it was a turning point in, in many ways, yes. Okay, so in addition to all your acting and performing achievements, you're currently fronting the campaign Roaring for Freedom, which is run by the White Lion Protection Trust, and the aim of the campaign is to protect lions both in the wild and captivity. Now, why have you chosen to support this cause? Um, yes, just to be clear, it's Roaring for Freedom, this particular um, campaign, which is on, which is the, the front of it, um, is we're fronting it on a site called Indiegogo. So uh, as we speak, if people are interested um, in helping out, which is what it's all about, it, if you punch in Google Roaring for Freedom and then my name, uh, 
and Indiegogo or just one one of those two, um, then you'll get you'll you'll find out more about it. But yes, I I read a book, an incredible book about the white lions um, of South Africa, just at the end of last year by Linda Tucker. It was called the the mystery of the white lions, children of the sun god, and it completely opened up my heart, touched my heart in a way that, um, so much so that I, I got in touch with the, um, with Linda and the White Lion Trust. Um, and the White Lions, basically, the lions in general in Africa and globally are, are critically endangered um, in a way. There's, there's been quite a lot of press about the, the elephants and the rhino and uh, the tigers, but uh, the lions are in just as much, if not more, danger. There's a terrible, two terrible industries which are taking them out of the wild and threatening their existence, which it, it's said by the naturalists that if we carry on with what we're doing now, that within 10 years we could have lost all of our wild lions, which is it's, it's, it's a barely worth thinking it's about. It's a horrific now, thought, you know. yes. It's a horrific thought. How could we explain that to our children? And we simply mustn't let that happen. Uh, the white lions of South Africa, we, there's this one area. The, the white lion is a sacred, it's the sacred animal of, of Africa, which is huge cultural, spiritual significance to the uh, indigenous Africans. Um, but because of their rarity and their beauty, uh, they're even more targeted by this canned hunting which is basically people capturing from the wild and then farming these beautiful creatures, beautiful, majestic, graceful creatures, farming them with, you know, with a price on their head for, for Western, mostly Western um, hunters to be guaranteed a kill whilst they're in captivity. So people will come along and shoot these, these, these beautiful animals with a, with a fence around them. So it's not hunting. It's not what hunting is about. You know, I think original hunting where people need the food and there's a skill to it and they're tracking the animal and the animal have, the, have their opportunity and their chance. Um, also, you know, the original hunters and hunting as it was and should be done is was done with huge respect, not just for the animals and their lives, but also for the ecosystem that we're all a part of. So, you know, indigenous, our indigenous peoples and our ancestors who were in touch with their environment and with the nature, they, they were sensitive, you know, not to take the young of animals to, and not to take a pregnant, um, you know, wild boar or tiger because they, they knew how precious, you know, the whole system was and the sustainability of the system. So, you know, hunting like that, doesn't really as well. Certainly not in this case. We're, we're, we're farming, um, you know, our most iconic, majestic animal, drugging them, taking them away from their parents to be, you know, to be, end up on somebody's wall as a trophy. That's, you know, that's the extent of our disconnection um, from ourselves, from our hearts and from our natural world. So the white lions, for me, it's not just about you know, the, 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 the Global White Lion Trust is all about protecting 
the white lions and the lions and making sure that they don't go extinct. There's only three, three prides, about 10 or 12 lions left in the wild, thanks to the White Lion Trust. Um, so their work and what the, is about protecting them, but also I, I feel and making sure we don't lose them. But also there's something deeper going on that I think, and the, it's, it's also over hundreds of years, it's um, part of the African oral tradition. It's been said that the white lions, they have a message for humanity. And that message is all about, before it's too late, reconnecting with our natural world, with our mother earth and with, and becoming the true custodians uh, for this planet and, and all her creatures and plants that we're supposed to be because we've forgotten about it. We're totally disconnected from it. And the results of that are all around us. And if we don't wake up then uh, and, and reconnect and start the restoration job that we need to, then uh, we're, you know, uh, we're facing a future which is not worth thinking about and possibly one, you know, that includes they're not being human beings on this planet. You know, Mother, Mother Nature will repair herself, but it would be a great sadness if uh, we couldn't go along, you know, with her and be part of a beautiful, beautiful future. So the white lions, for me, that's why I focused on it, because it's, you know, we're losing species every day. So... The, the, the lions sit at the top of the, at the top of the food chain. You know, they're apex predators. Mm -hmm. And the white lions, to me, they're almost like the royal family. <laughs> well, certainly. And you've raised some certainly touching points there. Now, how is the money used to protect the lions? Well, I think it costs, you know, um, I think it's said about £1,000 a week to, at the moment, they've got 2,000 hectares of um, African bush, which they have... You have, you know, at the moment, unfortunately, you have to fence in. Uh, you have to put fencing around it and have high security because of the value of the lions and the poachers. So it costs about £1,000 a week just to, to keep those animals as they are. And they want to expand that land because each pride of animal needs, uh, each pride of lions needs so many hectares to, for their territory. So they've got other land which they're trying to purchase because if they just keep it to two or three prides, the gene pool will not be strong enough and they won't make it. So it's, it's a very touch and go as it is. So that money, um, you know, that's 50,000 50, a year just to keep up the fences and the security. Um, and then there's a whole load of staff which are looking after them and monitoring them. Um, more and more, they, you know, people can go and visit and there are programs there and they're, they're generating some income, but half of their income, are they're, they're relying solely on donations, uh, which is why, uh, which is why we've, we've set up this campaign to, um, to, help, to help them out and make sure that this work continues and that the white lions survive. And they, they, like I said, they, they also, they've just got a lioness, a golden lioness, um, two-year-old uh, who they're bringing in uh, who was uh, escaped with her whole pride from a nearby reserve and within a day I think ten of her brothers and sisters had been gunned down by poachers and she was the only one who survived so her name is Kalunga and 
she's just been introduced to one of the prides of the white li- with of the white lions and uh, so we're putting her name behind this campaign because every extra lion costs that much more money and um, yeah that's so the money goes very quickly uh, but I've been there myself it's a very very beautiful piece of land wonderful people who, uh, who care with all their hearts you know for making sure that that we keep our lions because this is not just it's not just Africa's heritage this is I feel you know this is our heritage it is, it's the heritage of the human race it's the heritage of the human race and uh, you know there used to be lions wandering the, the, the globe in my own country you know pre-iron age in in Britain there were there were lions and and uh, elephants and they've gone you know so Africa holds some of the only you know some of the these creatures that are our heritage and holds that and the land is still there you know I this, when I went there in January it really cracked my heart open to be back in they, they call it you know the um, uh, something like the womb of the human race um, you know because it's where we all came from and to be in the Kruger Park down there, which is about the size of England and Wales, where it's still, you know, it's not exploited by man and animals can still roam free there. It's very hard opening experience and it gives you hope because it's easy, it's easy to lose hope, you know, with everything that's, that we're doing to the planet. It's Absolutely. Easy, but, um, yeah. So you've mentioned how our listeners can get involved over at the the uh, crowdfunding campaign. Now, in addition to supporting such a worthy cause, there are lots of perks that are involved at different levels. Can you take our listeners through some of those? Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, well, um, for those of you who are Ripper Street fans, um, which is the, I don't know if you know, you know that uh, series, it's a BBC series, we're just filming the third series, set in Victorian London. Um, we are filming that over here in Dublin, which is where I am at the moment. And two of the perks uh, are the opportunity to come to and visit Ripper Street set, spend the morning here watching the filming and have lunch with me, meet some of the cast. Um, there's an opportunity for those of you who like walking to come on my favourite sacred walk in Pembrokeshire, which is where I live, um, to the home of the Blue Stones, which got taken from Pembrokeshire to Stonehenge, the only um, stones of that type which you can find in the world, which is why they, the uh, Iron Age man went all that way. Uh, um, so that's a walk um, in uh, early October with me. And then there's a chance to visit the lions um, in South Africa, which is, uh, and get VIP treatment and meet Linda Tucker, who's the... Um, inspiration behind all this it's her vision and she wrote the book there's there's all sorts of other wonderful um wonderful perks there but those are those are three of the best ones absolutely and if our listeners are looking to find a link it's in the show notes for this episode now you're also a very very well-known actor and you're probably most recognized from game of thrones or ripper street how did you first get the job on ripper street Actually, I think Game of Thrones had quite a lot to do with that because the writer of Ripper Street, Richard Warlow, um, who is a wonderful writer, he, as he was writing the character of Bennett Drake, he, um, he was also a throny, a bit of a Thrones fan, and he just got me in mind for it. 
and he gave you know he he gave my name to the casting directors and that's and he was very behind um getting me in so that's uh thrones is yeah i got a lot to be you know I'm, a lot, I'm very thankful for game of thrones it's a pretty wonderful job all in all um yeah that's how that happened now a key part of the show is the rapport between yourself and the other leads how do you build and sustain the rapport on a film set <laughs> well with these with a particular cast that we've got um, with the two guys adam and matt and also um Charlene and Miana, um, who played Rose and Long Susan, that we just, they're just, we're lucky enough to, you know, they're a wonderful bunch. So we don't actually have problems with the rapport. I mean, we have to be careful because it's, we're the, uh, those two are the biggest gigglers I've worked with and I'm pretty bad myself. So the rapport can, can be a bit too much sometimes. It's hard to get any filming done. Um, but that's all part of the enjoyment, you know, of getting through the day and uh, keeping the energy up. So it's just one of those wonderful jobs where you click with the people and uh, it's a pleasure to be there with them. They're always the best jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there was a bit of, uh, I suppose, a bit of a fright uh, for Ripper Street fans uh, last year when the BBC announced they were axing it after two seasons. But now you're filming the third season with Amazon. How did that happen? And were you aware of what was going on at the time? We, we um, yes, Will, the producer from Tiger Aspect, who, who brought the project to the BBC originally, he was keeping us informed. I mean, we, for, we all thought for a moment we'd lost it um, and because of the BBC dropped it when the, when the deadline came. Um, I think it's something that... You know, they, if they, I think the BBC did regret dropping it, um, especially after the response from the public. Um, and they cited viewing figures, you know, originally, uh, in contrast to I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And I think that that is unfortunate because it's never been really what the BBC is about, is trying to get in the maximum viewing figures. But... Um, they had the chance then, because Amazon came in with some funding. Um, BBC are still very much part of it. They've got their name on it. It's going to be shown on the BBC after the after Amazon have uh, had six months or something with it. So I think everybody's ended up ended up happy. But yeah, we we it was it seemed like an early death. And that there was unfinished business for uh, for all of the characters, so uh, we're glad to be back here doing it. And I know the viewers are certainly going to be excited to see it return. Yeah, well, I hope so, and uh, it's very much down to them that I think you know it's a large reason as to why we're back. It's because of the public response, which was incredible. Now, when can viewers expect to see the third season? Oh, well, Amazon, I think they're thinking autumn. They really want to get it out quick. Mm-hmm. So um, then whatever time gap it is that the BBC are allowed to show it. It's, but it's going to be... So the BBC it will be next year, but it'll be this year on Amazon. OK. Now, are there any notable differences between the first two seasons and the third season that you can tell us about? There's going to be some notable <laughs> There's a lot happening. Um, it's very dramatic. There's some big 
shifts for a lot of the characters, but I really can't go into too much. Four years has passed. Um, so historically, there's Richard, the writer, always, always likes to, you know, interweave the historical, you know, whatever's happening in London historically there. So that's what he does. So, um, you know, we've, we'd reached a kind of point at the end of the last, last season um, where the characters had, become, you know, really come to the edge, and my character certainly had. Uh, so I'm not going to give too much away, but there's a lot that happens for all of them in a short amount of time, um, and it's going to be quite revealing, I think. Uh, for the people who are involved with our characters, you know, and following following their relationships and their journeys, that. Uh, because um, there's dramatic turns for every one of the main characters, ones that um, I think will be quite shocking to some, well, to everyone who's, in, who's, who's uh, emotionally invested. So without giving too much away, because I don't want to, and I can't, um, just to say that um, surprises are guaranteed. It sounds very, very exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. We're right in the middle of shooting it now, so um, yeah. But um, you don't want to. You don't want to. You never want to give too much away. No. It's funny, you know. I mean, I, I can't with this because I'm involved in it so much. But Game of Thrones, I actually tend to just read my scenes and learn them because I, I like to watch it myself because I don't want. I don't want to know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, speaking of Game of Thrones, you're a key character in that series. How would you describe it? And how would you describe your character? Oh. How would I describe Game of Thrones? Well, um, what it is, which is um, very uh, iconic medieval drama fantasy, but very much based in our own um, kind of mythic history. Not even mythic. It's not mythic. I think George George R. R. Martin uh, based it this base thrones very much on the kind of European medieval history, I'm told. Not that I was such a great historian at school. Um, so I think, you know, it's that, it's like a, we're very attracted to it because it's in, you know, it's, it, we can feel it. It's not, it's not that, that far, you know, in our ancestry. And there's that sense of magic and, uh, you know, like a cross between, they say it's like a cross between Lord of the Rings and and Goodfellas or something like that. Um, <laughs> um, so, yes, it's a, it's it's like a, you know, a, a um, tapestry of, of the human condition, if you like, you know, and those, um, the fights, the, 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 those mythic ego, kind of egotistical fights of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm babbling now. I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Doing my best. Um, but my character, I would... It's, he's a lovely one to play because he's, he's a rogue. Um, he's very physical. It's, uh, he's clever. And yet there's a heart underneath there, I think, that... Uh, he hides, but it can't help. You know, I think there's... Uh, he actually cares more than he lets on, but he's because of 
he's a sellsword and he's working his way up the system, you know, which is in medieval times, if you were lowly born, it was very, very hard to get out of there. Um, and he's got, he's ambitious and he wants out and he's got out and he's on his way. And, uh, you know, uh, so there's a lot of richness to the character and uh, his dark kind of northern sense of humour is also a wonderful part of it. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it was a real gift that came along there with Thrones. So the fourth season is currently airing. Can you tell us a bit about what your character's been up to so far? He's been sword. He's had sword play with uh, the Kingslayer. He's been teaching the Kingslayer to get his, you know, get his left up because he's only one-handed now. The Kingslayer. So he's he's helping train up the Kingslayer. Um, he's just had a wonderful farewell thing with Tyrion. Ron. Um, he doesn't. Yeah, he's, he doesn't do much, and he's not one of the main characters. But he's. It, but he seems to be very popular. But he doesn't. So. I'm not in every episode, you know. I think possibly in the fourth season. I'm only in four five episodes. And that's um, just the way it is. You know, there's so many. It's got, I think it's got more characters than any other largest cast uh, ever. So, um, yeah, he comes and goes. But the important thing is he's still alive. <laughs> yes, for the moment. <laughs> yeah. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed there. Mm. Now, can you describe the process of filming an episode of Game of Thrones? Um, well, the process is you receive your scripts um, with confidential written all over them and you, you're definitely not allowed to send them to anybody else. Uh, it's all very, it's the most confidential kind of secretive job I've done. Um, I think just because, you know, for obvious reasons, they don't want any leaks. Um, you receive your scripts, you learn your lines, you do your character work. If, if in my case, I've got a fight, um, then you get your god in early to start rehearsing the fight. It's a bit like a dance. You learn all the moves and you have to get it into your system and really, really get that one down because you've got, obviously, because you've got swords in your hand and another actor facing you with a possible very large compensation bill if you get it wrong. So um, you, learn, you, do, you do your prep work and then you go in to set, which might be uh, all the interiors are in Belfast. So I'm due in Belfast in um, about three weeks, I think, uh, about six weeks, and for my first bit of shooting. I haven't received the scripts yet, but um, I will and I'll learn it. I'll go in and you try not to get um, overawed with the fact that you're, you know, in one of the most kind of phenomenally successful television programs ever made. You try not to get starstruck <laughs> and uh, keep yourself together, act like you know what you're doing and uh, walk in, take deep breath, and do your job. And it's incredible because the sets are just... I've never, I've never, you know... I haven't done that many big movies, so I wouldn't... But this is, like, all big movie. The, and uh, you're so supported by that. You get these wonderful directors, and every line, you know, is has been 
the writers, Dan and David, who are very close to all the cast, and then they're always present. They're there with you, uh, and anything you want to talk about. And the whole thing, there's so many, there's so many people there, hanging on every word and making sure that the production and the scene, and they'll give a whole day to one scene sometimes, which, you know, here, which is a very big luxury, I've got to tell you, especially in television. You know, here on Ripper Street, which is probably a twelfth of the budget, if no, even less, much, much less. Um, you know, you, you're doing, you might do seven scenes in a day. So you got, you've got that time, um, which is all, which also can can go against you if you have too much time and get get too nervous, and you're, you they leave you to last to, to shoot your angle. Um, but no, it's wonderful. So you go in and. Um, yeah, and uh, do your day and walk away. And I do. I might go and do, you know, I might do two or three days at a time, and then have have three weeks off and go and do another two or three days. So you do all the interiors, and then uh, uh, to start off with, over, and then you'll go off to wherever, whatever locations that your character is involved in. I've been, I've lucky, lucky enough to have been to Croatia for the last three years, and I think we're going to Spain this year. Um, which will be nice. And I have no idea what is coming for my character. And I can't even refer, I'm told to, I, I'm told I can't even refer to the books that, um, you know, there might be more changes than that because they're trying to make the television series work independently from the books, you know, and you can't, I don't think, introduce all the characters that came into the books. It's just too complex. Um, so I really don't know what's coming, and that's quite exciting. Um, yeah, so that's that's life as a as a throny actor. So, is there any extra pressure that comes with filming such an iconic TV show like Game of Thrones? Um, well, I I kind of I do feel it a bit. You, you do you just it's hard. You know, you really have to focus. You really have to focus, which you do as an actor anyway, because as soon as you get in your mind and start thinking about, you know, everybody that, all the millions of people that are going to be watching you, you're in trouble. You're out of character. There is an extra pressure, I find, for Thrones, because you know that globally, you know, every, every not just every scene you're in, every line you say is being blogged, you know, it's, people are hanging on every word. I don't mean that in, you know, because I'm saying it. I mean just because of the extraordinary popularity of the program, but also the the way, you know, our interactive social media at the moment, everything's being talked about. And you, so if you get that in your mind and you're aware of that, then you, like I say, you've lost, you've, you've, you've stepped out of your kind of, of what it is to be an actor, which is to be, you know, in that scene and living it and emoting it. And uh, so that's very much, you know, I, I really have to go through that process when I'm doing Thrones, more so with other jobs, because I'm aware of the phenomena that's around it. Mm. Now, you've obviously got a couple of projects lined up, but is there anything else in the pipeline that you can tell our listeners about? Um. No, I'm, I've been, because of these two jobs, which have been, I've been so lucky to have, I've not been, I, um, I've not really been wanting to work 
in my time off. I, I value um, life. <laughs> I value life outside <laughs> acting. Um, I've got a, a lovely place in Pembrokeshire with a little kind of project which has got nothing to do with acting, which is more to do with, you know, community and healing and, uh, and organic gardening. So I love to be there. I lo- and and I like to get away each year, travel a bit, explore different cultures, if I can, if I'm lucky enough, um, and and do this work, more of this work, getting involved with with causes that, that are close to my heart. And uh, lions is one of them. Uh, I'm 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 uh, at the moment also involved in trying to um, get mindfulness. Uh, into schools in Pembrokeshire and Wales and ultimately the UK because that's also something I'm very passionate about. So, um, yes, I have a busy life outside acting as well, which I'm very thankful for. And one does feed the other. It helps me to open doors. Um, and uh, so there's a nice marriage between the two there. It certainly would be. Now, finally, what advice would you offer to someone looking to work in the performance industry? gosh um well i'd say if it's acting the advice would be to you know to follow your heart yes if you really want it because you really have got to want it and uh so yes follow it and believe in yourself don't be don't judge yourself by whether you're working or not you know don't Keep, you know, remind yourself that you're much more than your profession and that there is, uh, so that's important. And I, and I would say to keep learning and developing your skills and your creativity in other areas and not to sit at home waiting, waiting for jobs. Um, yeah, that would be my, uh, my main advice because it's easy to become a victim I think of a, of a profession that doesn't have a conscience mm-hmm. and uh, you know I was I, something I was actually a gift that my father gave me was because I could see how he would as, as most actors do my grandfather as well it's like he would allow judge himself by whether he's working or not it's an old you know it's, it's a kind of old joke that at an actor's party and the first thing the actors say to each other is are you working rather than hi how are you doing I mean that's an exaggeration but it's also a kind of reflection of the truth and it's the sad truth because we don't want to be dependent our happiness doesn't want to be dependent on whether we're working or not no Um, and so that's that's the main warning but also just to believe in that creativity and find ways to express your creativity, whether you're acting or not, and keep that flow going, because that's what's important. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time today, and for people looking to support the White Lion Trust, I've got a link in the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That's all right. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. Bye.
That was Jerome Flynn talking about his charity campaign, Roaring for Life, as well as Ripper Street and Game of Thrones, and he certainly gave us some exciting spoilers there. Now I'm going to give you the latest reviews uh, from new release movies and Roadshow DVDs. First up, I'll be talking about some of the road, the road, the road, the road, the release. Some fantastic material this June. I'll only be a small amount of it, and I'll be moving some of the June stuff to the first July episode. So, in addition to the ones I'll be talking about today, they've also released Three Days to Kill, Winter's Tale, and Nebraska, and I'll be talking about those in detail next month. Now, the first film I'm going to talk about from Roadshow is Out of the Furnace. Now, this is an action film. But I think it took some of the action a little bit too far. They included violence, in the, at least in the opening scenes, just to show how tough characters were. Now, I think they could have conveyed that in more subtle ways. And the storyline was lacking a bit, but I'm sure action fans are really, really going to love this one. And that's available uh, from the end of this month. Now, my favourite release of the month from Roadshow was Mandela, The Long Walk to Freedom. Idris Elba fantastically captures Mandela, and instead of just showing the positive side of him, they show some of the hardships that he had to go through, as well as some of the, uh, the information that's almost been hidden from the public, and I think this film is a fantastic film that anyone studying history or wanting to know more about Mandela should go and get. It is done brilliantly. It's an Academy Award nominee, Golden Globe winner, and uh, the BAFTA nomination for the Outstanding British Film. Now, speaking of British film and TV, Call the Midwife Season 3 and the 1 to 3 box set was also released, and it's a drama series uh, set in the period following World War II. Every episode is a poignant representation of the struggles and often joys faced by everyday Londoners as the city is slowly rebuilt. And the stories are told through the eyes of midwives and nuns. While informative and enjoyable, the formulaic nature of the episode sometimes becomes a little tiresome, but this is a very, very popular series, and I strongly recommend fans of history or drama should go and check this one out. Now, the final DVD release I'll be talking about is Inside Lewin Davis. Now, this one came out on the last day of May, um, and I think it's got some wonderful music in it, uh, but the storyline itself is it falls just a little short, which is unfortunate, but I still think it's worth buying for the soundtrack. So the releases from Rojo this month were Out of the Furnace, Nebraska, Winter's Tale, Three Days to Kill, Mandela, A Long Walk to Freedom, Inside Lewin Davis, and Call the Midwife Series 3 and Series 1 to 3 box set. I'd like to thank our very generous supporters, Roadshow Entertainment, for giving me the opportunity to watch and review those releases. Now, just a reminder that uh, some of them I didn't cover today, I will be covering off next time. Now, the movies that I'll be talking about for this episode are uh, National Theatre Live's King Lear, The Two Faces of January, Frank, and Transformers Age of Extinction. Now I'll start with Frank, which was released on the 19th of June. Now, the movie Frank is loosely based on true events about a band whose lead singer wears a giant cartoon head. Now, the problem with Frank is it didn't quite know what it was doing or where it was going, and Dom Hall Gleason's character wasn't easy to relate to or overly interesting. 
Now, Michael Fassbender played Frank and did a fantastic job, even though he was in a giant head for the majority of the film. And the director cleverly used social media figures to document the band's progress from the rest of the world's perspective. And it was very clever and subtle, but this is a quirky, eccentric film that fans of the original band may be curious to see, but is unlikely to attract a mainstream audience, and I'm going to give that one two and a half stars. Now, the next film I'll be talking about is The Two Faces of January, which stars Viggo Mortensen, Kirsten Dunst, and Oscar Isaac. Now, it's the directorial debut for Hussein Amini, and he also wrote the film, but he truly masters the adaptation of the classic novel by Patricia Highsmith. Now, I'm not sure if the director intended for the audience to like Viggo Mortensen's villainous character, but you certainly can't help yourself due to his on-screen charisma, and he certainly steals the show. Now, it's an exciting, suspense-filled drama with a strong cast, good direction, and an incredible score, and it's an outstanding picture that I would strongly recommend, and I'm going to give that one four stars. Now, the next film I'll be talking about is National Theatre's live King Lear, which is currently playing an encore season at Palace Nova around Australia. Now, it is a cl- this is one of Shakespeare's classics, and it is very, very powerful, but has a few minor flaws. Simon Russell Beale played Lear, and he really encapsulates the character's madness and unpredictability. However, at the start, Lear is supposed to be strong and in control, but Beale starts the play as a weaker character, and that left him nowhere to take his portrayal for the majority of the first half. Overall, it's a strong production that has proved to be outstandingly popular in cinemas, and as I mentioned, is having an encore screening at Pazanova around Australia this week. Now, in addition to National Theatre Live plays, there's a whole ton of special events that screen live from their locations at Palace Nova, and over the next few months we see West End's Ghost, and later in August, Monty Python's One Down, Five to Go. We're playing a limited release at Palace Nova as well, but for King Lear, I'm going to give it four stars. Now, a film that isn't actually released around the world until Friday, but I've already seen it, it's Transformers The Age of Extinction. Now, while it's half reboot, half continuation, I'm not really sure if Transformers needed a fourth film. Now, I'm sure it'll spawn another, at least, two films, and I think they've chosen much better actors to play the leads. In this film, Mark Wahlberg was the standout, and Stanley Tucci wasn't far behind. Both knew how to play the action scenes as well as the comic timing, but I just felt the storyline was quite weak. It felt to me as though it could have been uh, created by 10-year-olds who were playing with the Transformers toys. Now, I know these uh, these films are designed to sell the toys, but I do feel the storyline could have been a little bit stronger. It felt like they were blowing up things for the sake of it, and that really made the story suffer. It certainly had elements that could have really created a, a Marvel-esque type film with that right mix of humour, action, story, and character development, but it did fall short, though kudos to Mark Wahlberg and Stanley Tucci for really lifting it, but unfortunately it's just not a great film, but I'm sure people who really enjoy action movies uh, all really enjoy the Transformers, and people with young kids who like action films are certainly going to want to go out and see this one, but I'm going to give it one and a half stars. And I'd just like to thank Palace Nova for the opportunity to review all of those films. Now, next major episode will be released in uh, the second week of July, and I'll be talking to Adam Hills, the comedian and television presenter, so come back then for that. Now, I'd obviously like to thank my wonderful supporters in the uh, in the podcast, Roadshow Entertainment, 
Palace Nova Cinemas and Mad Zombie Collectibles. And all those details about our supporters are on the website www.preacherspodcast.net. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Preachers Podcast and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Preachers Podcast. And also, if you want any of the full reviews of the films that I talked about released by Palace Nova, you can check them out at the website under the Movie Reviews section. I've been your host, Benjamin Mayer McKay, and this is Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. <laughs>